Tejas Manohar. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks for having me, Alex. Yeah, absolutely. So you're the founder and co-CEO of HiTouch. You've been on Software Engineering Daily a few different times now talking about HiTouch, but maybe for those who haven't heard, just tell us what is HiTouch? What are you all doing there? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the, the the basic like thesis of HiTouch is that most companies, when they get above a certain size, they start investing in this thing called a data warehouse. I'm sure everyone's heard of data warehouses at this point after Snowflake came out, came to the public markets a few years ago and was like the largest software IPO, whatever, or something like that. Um, but basically it's, it's a normal database. Like, you know, imagine a Postgres or a MySQL or any database you use as a software engineer, but it's sort of built for analytical purposes. Um, and companies use these data warehouse databases and they put all their data into them from every part of the business. So, you know, dump all that sales data into it, marketing data, web traffic, product data, all sorts of information. And they use a data warehouse, not as a database to power an app, but more so for analytics. So people use tools like Looker or Power BI or, um, you know, mode analytics, um, you actually build charts and answer questions and do analytics on top of the data warehouse. Um, but that's been like the, you know, the purpose of a data warehouse for the last 10, 20 years. Um, what we're doing at HiTouch is changing that. Um, effectively, what we're saying to the market is, look, if you've invested that much in a data warehouse and you put all this valuable information in there, why just use it for analytics and charts and recording and BI? Like, let's actually take that data and use it to power operational processes around the company. So, Let's use it to power ad targeting um, for a company like, you know, Warner Music Group, um, or let's use it to target to do, you know, email personalization for a company like PetSmart. Um, and we do that by a simple process called reverse ETL, which basically means, you know, ETL is taking data from places and putting it into the warehouse. Reverse ETL is taking data from the warehouse and putting it into back into systems that can do stuff with that data. So systems like Salesforce or Facebook ads, TikTok, HubSpot, all those sorts of tools. Um, so that's what we do at like a, a thousand foot view. Awesome, very cool. So I used to do I used to do some data engineering work and I did a lot of ETL and I was I was worried that reverse ETL was like all the work they did to like fix my stuff after I left. But but good to know that's like uh, not not what reverse ETL is. So the same could uh, be said for me. The same could be said for the work <laughs> I've done in the past. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> okay, so one term like. I guess how I sort of think about high touch too is like, uh, you know, there's like that MarTech uh, sort of landscape chart and there's like a bajillion different pieces of tech. And, yeah. and I think high touch is like one of the things that sort of ties that, that together and like makes sense of that. Is, is that how I'm sort of orienting it correctly? Actually the MarTech chart, funny you bring it up. I actually did a, a talk this morning. So a live webinar this morning with, the creator of that. So his name's Scott Brinker. He's been at HubSpot for ages now, and he's been running that for, you won't believe it, 13 years. And he says there's 10,000 companies in this MarTech map now. So um, yeah, and it's interesting. The way he described it is like each of these tools in the MarTech map, everything from systems that allow you to send emails to analytics tools, to tools that do attribution, to tools that help you optimize your ads, basically needs to get data into it to be valuable. And it also creates new data that you want to use in other parts of the business. Um, so the question is like, how do you get in data into it? And where do you put the data that's coming out of these systems? They all do different things. And there's just this valuable data ecosystem around it. And for a long time, um, there was no like standard of how to do that. Like people were exporting CSVs out of these tools, you know, 
using SFTP to get data into these tools, maybe putting into Salesforce and then Salesforce is a native integration with one of these tools. But data has just gotten so complicated and so high cardinality, so variable from company to company and such a big priority across organizations that I think the data warehouse, like technologies like Snowflake, Google BigQuery, Databricks, um, you know, Hive, et cetera, have actually evolved over the last um, over the last decade to sort of be the standard for how companies manage data. And all these tools, uh, people are now pulling data out of those MarTech tools, putting in the warehouse, and with high touch, people are taking all the data from the warehouse and sending it back to those systems so that you know you can do something like send an email in Salesforce to people who added something to their cart but didn't check it out. Like Tools like Salesforce have the potential to do that, but if you actually want to make that happen, you need the right data flowing into it at the right time, and that's what we make really easy. Very cool. Okay, so one term I've sort of heard in this area as well is is CDP, customer data platform. W like, what is a CDP? Is high touch a CDP? How does that all fit in? Great question. This space is full of terms. Uh, I I never stop learning <laughs> learning the terms in this space, to be honest. But CDP, it, it is a term that um, that I know quite well. Um, so I I used to work before founding High Touch. I was actually kind of an early engineer at this company called Segment. Um, which was actually partly responsible for creating this CDP or customer data platform space. Um, it was a totally interesting journey of like trying to avoid this term, which meant a bunch of things to eventually just saying, screw it, we'll be the number one CDP, <laughs> um, which is super funny. But what is a CDP? Uh, for, for the audience here, because I, I feel like only maybe half of the audience you know, really has heard of this term before or, or less than that. A CDP is what you, they call a customer data platform. And what it really is, it's a fancy term for a software you can buy, Segment's one of them, Salesforce has one, Adobe has one, and Particle has one. You can buy the software and the promise is that collect all your customer data into the CDP via these SDKs, Android SDK, iOS SDK, JavaScript SDK, Java SDK, et cetera, and send them like events about what your users are doing, clicked button, added to cart, checked out, et cetera. Then all the data flows into this CDP, which is a SaaS service. And then the CDP can forward it to all these different other systems like HubSpot or Salesforce or Adobe or um, you know, Mixpanel so that you can analyze the data there. You can use it for marketing. You can use it for ads, et cetera. Um, and in between, the CDP has some functionality to allow you to slice and dice that data however you want. Um, now, you asked what's the difference between high touch and a CDP? So a CDP, it's like kind of a packaged software and pretty much all of them revolve around this concept of sending them data about your users, like little attributes, like feels about your users and events that your users are taking. Um, but in reality, you know, that, that may make sense for a, a pretty straightforward business, let's say like a, you know, Shopify store or something like that. But if you go to a more complicated business um, or, or a digital business, really like, let's say some of our customers, like the NBA or Warner Music or you know Retool or Ramp or all these different types of companies, um, they don't just have like users and events. You know they have other types of data like games and you know pets and um, you know results from those and all these like sophisticated data structures that you have in a database. Like every engineer should be able to resonate with that. And the data warehouse of the company has all that data. And it already has it today. You don't have to write more tracking code to get it, you know, get it into like a CDP. So basically what, what our promise is at high touch is like, if you've already been investing in the data warehouse 
over the last 10 years, and that's your kind of source of truth for business that you're already using for your reporting, your analytics, answering your questions, board meetings, just use that data as your source of truth and turn it into a CDP with high touch. Like the part that the data warehouse is typically missing is a way to get all that data to all the other systems where you can take action on it, like support tools or CRMs or ad networks. And Hightouch makes that really, really easy. So we've come up with this term called a composable CDP um, that's been picking up in the you know, MarTech landscape or whatever you called it, Alex. Um, yeah. And it's basically just means a CDP that you can you know connect directly to the places data already lives. Um, so you don't have to go through this like six month process of standing up this huge piece of software that can be really expensive and all sorts of things. Yeah, cool. Okay, so when when we're talking about CDPs, composable CDPs, I, and I'm thinking about who, like what kind of companies need these? And I think of like three archetypes. Tell me if like these do need it or, or don't need it. So one would be like, uh, you know, like a very high traffic, but maybe like low value per customer, like social media or content publishing, things like that. Maybe next you have like a, an e-commerce store or something like a Shopify store, something like that, where a uh, smaller number of traffic, but a higher value per customer. And then you have like B2B SaaS, which is like super high value per customer, much smaller number of customers. Do you sort of like all three of those need need CDPs? Is it just the last one? Like wh who, what kind of types of companies are, are using these? Super great question. Um, so it's interesting. I'll answer that in two parts. So one's in the CDP angle, and then two is just this technology of reverse ETL, which we've kind of coined. Um, so with the CDP angle, people are usually talking about marketing use cases or sales use cases or these customer-facing use cases. And the biggest biggest type of company that we see investing in a CDP, like all, all these types of companies you mentioned could benefit from a CDP. The biggest ones we find that really invest in it though is the ones with a lot of customers. I mean, if you're a you know if you're an enterprise sales business and you know everyone everything's being sold on relationships and you have a few hundred customers, like you don't need all this fancy automation and data automation to to, to target your customers. That's just not really doesn't really make any sense. But if you're a company with a lot of customers, whether you're a B two B company like let's say Lucid Chart, that's one of our customers. Like I've been using that product for like ten years. You can go in and make all these charts and all that sort of stuff and draw out your engineering diagrams and um, like a company like that, they have a lot of customers. Like, yes, they have salespeople, but with data in their warehouse, they can tell those salespeople like exactly in Salesforce using high touch, they can, they can send information like how many times did this user, you know, log into the app in the last month or um, did this, you know, send the salespeople, not a list of everyone who logged in the last, everyone who signed up in the last month, but the users who did the most activity, who invited the most users to Lucidchart who might be the best ones to go after from a sales perspective. And then you can take that obviously like a few magnitudes up and think about a company like Warner Music or NBA um, or PetSmart that has you know tens and hundreds of millions of, of, of customers and really needs to use automation to reach them in any meaningful way. Yeah, very cool. Okay, so you worked this segment and, and so then what led you to, you know, you were very familiar I assume with the, the CDP world was it just seeing all that data locked in a warehouse but not getting to the tools? Is that why you, you started started high touch? No, no. So that's definitely part of it. It's definitely part of it. So let me think back. So I actually, you know, I, I love the segment product, love the segment team. Um, I actually joined the company all the way back in 2016, but I first used segment as a customer when I worked at a, a small startup in, in Tennessee. Um, and um, really what I think like, yeah, I fell in love with the product because no one likes to pipe data around different systems. Um, like 
that's just not fun from an engineering perspective when sales or marketing's like, hey, get data in the Salesforce this way or get into Marketo that way. Like any engineer would like to outsource that, um, frankly. Um, so I really like Segment from that perspective because I was working on the website and I could track these, you know, API calls on the website and they'd start going to the, the business systems, which I hated reading the API docs of. Um, but so I joined the company and Actually, what what happened was that over the over the few years I was at Segment, the technology landscape just changed really drastically. Um, like how companies viewed data warehouses actually changed pretty drastically. So when I joined Segment, cloud data warehouses were just becoming a thing. Like before that, you had to have on-prem data warehouses and a whole team of staff to manage them, and it's really annoying to scale up and down, and not as easy to use as they are today. Um, but cloud data warehouses became this thing. Amazon Redshift was like the pioneer of the space. Snowflake was a small startup no one really cared about back then. Um, obviously, times change. And everyone's just trying to figure out how to get data into Redshift in order to do advanced analytics. So the default way to do analytics would be to use like Google Analytics or Mixpanel or let's say Amplitude or a solution like that. And when you couldn't answer the question because you needed another data source or you needed to join things together in a fancy way, you would reach to the data warehouse. There's more of the advanced tool than the default tool. By the time I left Segment, the whole data ecosystem had evolved a lot. I mean, we talked about Snowflake earlier, absolutely blew up as a company. The whole practice of BI became a lot more accessible um, to smaller companies. Like 200 person startups had a data engineer or a data analyst, and that was unheard of before. Even a, even a 20 person startup might have it these days. Um, and I really realized that you know, the, it wasn't segment, which was becoming the source of truth of information or any SaaS tool, like no SaaS tool was the source of truth. It was actually the data warehouse, which was becoming the source of truth and was the default system to look into when you had a question or when you need to answer something about data. And I saw the most advanced customers of ours at segment start building their pipelines to activate data and actually use it for operational ways off the data warehouse um, and realized there was an opportunity to make that really mainstream because you know, no one was taking that angle. Everyone was trying to be the source of truth, not embrace the warehouse as one and leverage it, if that makes sense. Yeah, very cool. Okay, so you said activate data. I know you, you all talk a lot about data activation. Like, what is data activation? Or how do you see it at, yeah. at Touch? Super interesting. Um, so our original term at Touch was reverse ETL. It's still our, you know, a big term, you know, of ours today. I think um, it just makes a lot of sense to a data professional. You're ETLing data into the warehouse. Let's do the reverse. Let's get it from the warehouse back to the systems. Um, but reverse ETL, I mean, you can already empathize with this. It's it's kind of a weird term, especially for like, let's say a chief digital officer or marketing officer, or even a technology officer. Like sometimes people don't want to spend a lot of money on something called reverse ETL, or they don't understand what that means off the bat. They can't tell their they can't tell the, 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 the salesperson or the marketing leader that said, hey, can you get data into the system that they're going to reverse ETL? It just doesn't make sense to them. Um, they don't know what ETL is in the first place, potentially, or it doesn't, doesn't click. So data activation is just our, like, I'll be honest, it's our more business-friendly term to, like, I'll say it as it is. It's our business-friendly term to tell people what we're actually trying to do with reverse ETL, trying to help you not analyze data, like there's data analytics, we're helping you activate the data, do stuff with it, put it in motion, use it to power ads, marketing, product, automated workflows, all that sort of stuff. Um, and that idea has, has also helped, that, that term has also helped us as a company as we've expanded our product portfolio to build products that aren't just used by engineers, like our reverse ETL product, 
but are also used by different teams around the company, like our customer studio product or audiences product, which you know marketers can come in and basically do reverse CTL. Uh, but without writing SQL and stuff like that, if that makes sense. Gotcha. Okay, that make, that makes sense. And that was something I was going to ask too. Is just like, who is your your common customer? Who's like initiating that high touch process? Is it an engineer or is it more sort of marketing side or or someone like that? I, I assume it's a lot of both. But yeah, it's a great question. It's a really good question. So um, overall, if you like zoom out, majority are technical users data engineers, data analysts, data scientists, people who know like SQL and Python, SQL and Python, and they know how to get data from systems using that. Um, and they want to do stuff with that data. So they come into high touch. And I almost think of us as like a lot of engineers have used like Zapier, like the website zapier.com. You can connect Google Sheets to Jira or Jira to Salesforce or all these things. Um, Zapier is actually even a customer of ours, which is pretty cool. But I think of us as like Zapier on your data warehouse, right? So, or your SQL database, you know, instead of connecting Google Sheets and Zero together, you write a SQL query and you connect it to all the like live business systems. Um, and, you know, technical users are the majority in terms of volume of people using the platform. But as we've started working with bigger and bigger companies, we've found that the, the gap between the technical teams and the business teams gets wider. It's like, you know, it's not just like two people sitting next to each other in an office. You have to submit Jira tickets every time you have a new use case. And then it goes to the queue next month and an engineer works on it. So even if you have high touch, if you have to go through the engineer every time, that, that could be a pain for, say, like a marketing team that's trying to iterate quickly. So um, we've built some additional products um, like called Customer Studio, for example, which is like basically a marketer's product to build like lists of users, sync them to different tools, split them up to run A-B tests and all sorts of cool things. And the, the, the most interesting part about the product is it sits directly on top of the data warehouse and generates SQL queries and uses our reverse ETL engine to sync data to different places. So in terms of our you know, business, I would say 50% of the larger companies using Hightouch are using it for that you know, customer studio, getting the marketers in there, et cetera. But we have so many developers all around the world who sign up every day just to just to sync some data from a SQL database to a SaaS tool, so. Yep, very cool. Um, and then when that data is getting synced from a warehouse to a SaaS tool, is that continuous? Is that batch? Is that, uh, you know, which one, what, what are we looking at there? Yeah, for sure. Great question, very common question. Um, so it is technically a batch system, um, like under the hood, right? So. We're kind of pulling data from the data warehouse, um, and we actually do some interesting optimizations. So if we integrate with a system like Snowflake or Databricks, um, we do things like write back the results. Of, you know, you set a query in high touch. You say you want to sync that to Salesforce. We will save the results of that query back into your Snowflake or Databricks or whatever it is, and actually do some delta calculation. So join against that temp table and kind of figure out what's added, what's removed, what's changed, and send those change that change feed, like build a change feed off the database and send that off to high touch and only send those changes down to something like Salesforce. So um, we almost turn this like batch set of data into like a more real time or incremental stream of, of data going to downstream systems. Um, and that's really cool. And in different databases, we do it in a different way. Some are more optimized, some are less optimized. Um, but the data warehouses are often also coming out with like new features that are allowing more real-time processing, which is really, really cool too. Like Snowflake came out with this feature um, called Streams that basically gives you a change feed off a table. 
And then they came out with another feature called materialized views, which they've been making better so that you can put a SQL query in and as new data comes in, it's incrementally processed. So um, every database we work with at Hightouch is different. We work with like 15 of them, but uh, we try to use batch systems and turn them into real time systems with, yep, with whatever sure. technology advancements or hacks we can figure out. That's what I would say. Yeah. With that Snowflake stream, if like, you know, with a data warehouse, it's, it's not uncommon to ingest hundreds of gigs or something like that. Do, do they push that through a stream then? If, if you're like, you know, bulk loading a brand new table in, like they'll push that whole thing through a stream. Um, so I'm pretty sure they have obviously, you know, closed source software. I don't know all the details. There's yeah, a cool sure. company building like an open source, um, open source real-time data warehouse called Materialize, uh, which we also oh, yeah. integrate with. And yeah, very cool. I'm sure yeah. I know they've been on the podcast before. I think I referred them to the podcast way back. So yeah, I mean, um, they, they're doing some cool stuff. Effectively, the way I would think about it is there's multiple engines. There's like a batch engine. There's like a real-time engine. SQL can, you know, compile down to some sort of thing like syntax that's, you know, syntax tree that's going to be interpretable by either engine. Um, the real-time engine, like the way it gets fast with with any real-time system is it it takes that SQL query and it, it turns it into like, um, you know, individual aggregates, which can be processed in an incremental way. So it, you take an average and you turn that into a rolling average and you start processing that as new data is coming in. I'm sure, you know, I don't know the details, but I'm sure a system like Snowflake is smart and can say, okay, if it's a huge bulk of data, let's use the batch system. Let's parallelize that as much as possible. It's a stream of data. Let's use a more incremental system, um, et cetera. But it's pretty cool technology. Honestly, I think I'm nerding out here. I don't, I don't get to spend no, that is, much time. Is, I love this stuff. This is great. <laughs> yeah. But like, yeah. I think... I think data engineering, you know, if you're not working on like LLMs or like ChatGPT or some like, you know, hard science, I think data engineering is the, not data engineering, but data infrastructure is like the coolest space to be in right now. Like so many cool technical problems and business problems also, and businesses to be built that are riding just the amount of change uh, that are coming from these underlying technologies. Like they're just evolving so quickly, so. I think that's right. Like so much of that infrastructure needs to be like rebuilt for, you know, the cloud and the elasticity of the cloud and S3 yeah. and also like, it's just like amazing. Oh, um, that's like what's happening. Yeah. No, that's a good point too. Like, you know, there's just so much room for innovation. Like I, I remember distinctly when Amazon Redshift came out, you know, everyone's like, yeah, like Snowflake, you know, what are those guys going to do? They're trying to compete with Amazon and Google on the cloud. Like that's crazy. But you know, Amazon, like the way they built Redshift initially, um, Cool piece of technology, and you know, I did a lot of work with it back in the day. But um, they ran the database in the cloud. You know, they they changed Postgres to a columnar database, and they ran it in the cloud. But they didn't really think about how the cloud as a technology could disrupt the data warehouse. And that's what Snowflake did, right? They actually, and BigQuery did. They actually said, you know, like we have a huge pool of compute resources that we can share across our customers. We also have this like super cheap storage now due to SSDs and we have like, you know, block storage, like S3, GCS, et cetera. Why don't we allow customers to dump data in the big, big pile of storage? And why don't we allow um, people to just send us a SQL query and pay for like what processor they want to see is like how fast they want it to run and how many seconds it runs for. And like that changes the, the nature of a cloud data warehouse, right? Like running a database in the cloud is one thing, like, you know, an Amazon RDS or Redshift. Thinking about how software can be fundamentally changed for the cloud is another thing, and um, I find it really fun to do that. <laughs> I touch yeah. it. Yeah, so I know, like especially thinking about the compute stuff. Like someone was telling me once, like, "Hey, you can run 
one CPU for a hundred seconds, or like a lot of these yeah. things are paralyzable. You can do a hundred CPUs for one second. And again, like, exactly. if, like you're saying, if you're just charging for CPU times time, it's like, why don't we just speed it up and, and make it go a lot faster now? Yeah. And a lot of our customers are doing things like, you know, there's, there's batch audiences that um, can run on the normal CPU, but then let's do something more real time and let's run that every minute on a more expensive um, compute resource. So it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting, honestly. Yep, cool. Okay, so back when I was doing data engineering, I was doing a lot of Redshift, sort of like what you were saying, but then, and then after I left it, Snowflake really took off. What's the sort of, what's it look like, state of the art between like Snowflake and more of like the Databricks Spark-like approach was the original one? Like is, is Snowflake yeah. still just dominating or what's that world look like right now? It's a great question. It's a great question. Snowflake is doing is doing extremely well. I mean, you, you can see that in their sort of quarterly earnings online, their public company, but they're crushing it. They've built a really easy to use technology and they're one of our closest partners at, at high touch, but we also partner, we also have to partner with you know anything our customers are using. Um, and there's a lot of solutions out there, right? Um, but as a Snowflake is seen as like the market leader in more BI-esque like workflows, like using, you know, data, data warehouse for data analytics, data engineering, et cetera. And it's really pushing out some awesome stuff um, for where the space is headed. Like, how do you share data between different companies through the Snowflake platform? How do you like do a secure join across two data sets to only see the overlap? And a lot of a lot of really cool stuff they're pushing out. The real-time stream is another example. But um, it's not always apples to apples between two data warehouse technologies. I would say Snowflake and Google BigQuery, they're pretty similar in how they're architected fundamentally with the separation of compute and storage. Databricks, it's actually a bit different. Um, they came at it from a different angle. Um, and they do have some pretty big advantages as compared to Snowflake as well. So basically, you know, Databricks, they, they're the company behind Spark, an open source project that, um, you know, a lot of people had to use for these really big batch processes before the data warehouse was so good with Snowflake. Um, but they do have some cool, interesting advantages for their data warehouse architecture. Um, they call it the lake house, and I didn't quite understand what that meant when it first came out. But once I understood, I actually really got excited about it. And specifically, what's cool about it is that um, you have this format they call Delta Lake um, as like a big distributed file system. You can run it on top of S3 or whatever. And basically, like when you run Databricks on top of your Delta Lake lake house, um, you can use it like a data warehouse and run SQL queries on it. But you actually have the raw data in S3 or in whatever storage system you have in your like cloud, and you can run other processes on that raw data. So you can write like Python scripts to go over it with pandas. You could write a program in Java or Go or Rust or whatever to go run over it. You could write ML algorithms. And so they're a bit more of an open ecosystem from that perspective that I think some engineers really value. Um, Snowflake is a bit more closed ecosystem, but it has, a ton of awesome features as well. So it's an interesting yeah. trade-off, right? It's an interesting yep. trade-off. Yep, sure. Uh, staying sort of on this technical track, like what are some of the hard technical problems you deal you deal with at, at high touch and in doing those syncs and, and different things like that between different systems? Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, I mean, the biggest, like the first and most obvious technical challenge most people can probably guess is we work with, you know, thousands of companies and hundreds of very large enterprises, including like Fortune 500 companies, oil and gas type companies, like all over the industry. And they have a lot of data. So there's just high scale data infrastructure challenges. And especially with the growth rate of our company, you know, we build a system that processes all this data. And then we grew like 
700% in terms of data volume last year. So that puts some load on our engineering team and infrastructure and all sorts of things. I think the other really interesting thing is that we have a pretty large scope, but we only have about 20 engineers, but our software is like multi-region, like we run it across the world in different cloud regions. It's multi-cloud, we run it on AWS and Google. Um, and one of our engineers actually like Andrew Page, uh, one of my good friends from back in the day, he joined Hydrogen. He's just like really dialed up how much surface area we've covered on the infrastructure side um, with a really nimble team. So there's a lot of automation and DevOps and like super cool stuff to, to scale that out with the small team. Like a lot of companies have like a 10 person team working on multi-cloud or something like that. Um, but in terms of like the other less obvious infrastructure, like cool technical challenges, um, I think building a UI on top of the data warehouse is a pretty cool one. So most times you use a SaaS and this app. And this is customer yeah. studio? Is yeah, yeah customer studio. To? Customer studio. Okay. So reverse ETL is a technical product. You put SQL queries in it, you know, you sync it to different systems. It's awesome, but it's a technical product. You can imagine that on top of data warehouse. Customer studio, it, it's actually like a visual product. Like it looks like a SaaS app, like Salesforce, like, you know, salesforce.com or HubSpot. Like it's clicky. It looks like a SaaS app. But it actually doesn't have a database behind it that stores all the customer data. Like we don't. We actually run it directly on top of the customer's data warehouse. Um, like we run it, you know, everything you're clicking, it's generating SQL queries that are running on top of the actual customer's data warehouse, like Snowflake or Databricks or whatever. And um, it's pretty cool because uh, it looks and feels like a normal SaaS app, but it runs on the data warehouse. And we have this kind of like layer between the data warehouse and our app that tells us which tables to query, how to join them together, how to aggregate them, and this like interesting kind of like semantic layer in between, um, so that the data person can set it up really easily, and then the marketers can go free. Um, and Josh and I actually came up with the concept. Josh is our, our one of my co-founders in our CTO. We came up with that concept in the early days, and I think we were like the first app to be built like on the data warehouse. It's not just an analytic system, if that makes sense, which is pretty cool. Um, and then the last thing I mentioned is. We built this system called FormKit and also this whole like framework for building integrations internally really quickly. Um, we call it like declarative destinations. Um, but that's kind of like our secret sauce for scaling up the platform. Like, you know, I mentioned we have like 20 engineers, but we have like 200 plus integrations at high touch. Like there's, a, you, know, you mentioned the MarTech map, right? There's a lot of SaaS tools in this world and we integrate with a lot of them too. And um, that, we, by integrating with so many systems, we basically found some patterns that allow us to not write like the full code for an integration sometimes, um, and instead be able to like use all these patterns and frameworks internally to like pump out these integrations much faster, monitor them much more easily, scale them much more easily, implement retry logic much more easily, implement a UI that can be used to configure it with just a JSON. We need to blog about more about this stuff, but it's, it's uh, pretty clever, I would say. In that yeah, sense. very cool. Do you did you have problems with like especially early on? Um, were some of these SaaS tools like not sort of built to be just like blasted with a bunch of data and, oh. and stuff like that? Or <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> oh painful. yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. We we've had uh, many issues like that. Um, the nice part about it is whatever problems we face, our customers would face them as well if they were writing the code. <laughs> and usually the API keys and stuff are on a per customer basis, so they all have their own rate limits typically. Sometimes not though. Sometimes there's interesting IP stuff we have to we have to work with. But um, but yeah, like there are definitely those challenges. We built a lot of system internally to retry any batches of data that don't make it, 
if we can get information from the API, like which row triggered a failure, we'd like pull those out or make smaller batch sizes and keep retrying them. We have like a dead letter queue to put all the data in that, you know, doesn't make it over on the first sync and try and future syncs without holding up the whole process. Like that's the common issue. A lot of times when people build in-house reverse ETL, they, you know, they just have like a, a loop and throws an exception and the whole script ends or something like ours is a bit more sophisticated, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, and then some of these, these companies we, we integrate with and we partner with, we've had to talk to their teams and, you know, figure out how we can get more data into them faster. Yeah. Like there's this one system. Yeah. We'll go for it. I was just gonna say like, has the, has the industry or like these systems, have they generally gotten better over the last, you know, couple of years because, because you're connecting like this or what, I mean, I wish like? I could say that. I feel like there's, you know, one-off cases where we've caused improvements in the downstream systems through collaborating with them and partnering with them and saying, hey, this really high value customer of yours needs to send a lot more data and maybe you should have bigger batch sizes on this API. Um, but frankly, what I see is that <laughs> the largest companies are the ones that are the most <laughs> painful to integrate with. Um, but there's always a way. There's always a way to get a lot of data into it quickly. It's just interesting and painful and you know, a lot of exploration by the largest companies are the hardest. And sometimes I wonder if there's a correlation between like bad API design and like the growth rate of a company or something like it's, that. It's just like so many people looking at it now, it becomes like API by committee and all, all kinds of like mess happens. There, yeah, right? I'm exactly. Sure. I'm sure like do, Salesforce do is just growing super fast and then, you know, end up with all exactly. these features. So. Yeah. Do any of these companies allow for batch like, other than just like blasting it through an like with a giant API payload, like do they allow you yeah. to do like S3 loads or something like that? Yeah, some of them do. Um, wouldn't say it's correlated with uh, newer companies. Like I would say, yeah, the biggest companies add these alternative methods because they're getting the biggest chunks of data from the biggest customers. But yeah, like Salesforce Marketing Cloud is an example. Crazy integration here um, from what I heard. But, you know, I think it's like SFTP to send like big, big chunks of data over the wire to it in like a compressed format. Um, you're like basically dropping files in there. And then I think there's a whole UI in Salesforce Marketing Cloud called like the automation job wizard or something. And we like automated this whole UI to like go pick up the <laughs> SFTP and all sorts of stuff. So there's always a way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's amazing. All right. I want to talk about the future a little bit. Like what, how do you see high touch evolving over the next year, two years, three years? Yeah, hundred percent. So I mean, one quick thing I already said in the past that I think I'm really personally excited about. And I actually came on this show like three years ago and I think I mentioned I was excited about it then too, but I think it's actually started happening in the meantime. It's like these data warehouses becoming more real time um, and being able to do like incremental streaming processing. I think a lot of people don't realize how impactful that's gonna be to the data engineering industry. Like today, if I wanna build a real time system that does like complex aggregations, I have to write a lot of code to do that. It's not easy at all. Or I have to use a system like Apache Flink or Google Dataflow. And it's just the data warehouse has really simplified batch. Real time is due for simplification. And I'm really excited about what both Materialize and Snowflake are both working on here. Um, so that I'm excited about. I think more real time processing will enable us to do like super cool use cases. Like, you know, you walk into a coffee shop and we can trigger a personalized notification to you that's specific to you, not just a generic one that's triggered by like your mobile phone, right? So there's super cool, super cool uh, real-time applications, I would say. 
Um, and then the other thing that I think is very interesting is we've never had a standard for where all the data exists in a company. And we're like, you know, we never had a standard for that until I think really the last 10 years at most companies um, where the data warehouse, the cloud data warehouse has evolved to be that. And I think, I mean, it's basically like the developer's dream, right? Or like the anyone's dream to have all the data in one place in one system in one database that's queryable in SQL with real time streams with like different paradigms. Like I actually really believe in this vision Snowflake's been pushing to market of like a data cloud. Like I don't think it's just marketing. It's like one-stop shop for different paradigms of accessing data with all the data in the company um, because of the separation of compute and storage, making that really cheap. And I think that's going to really change the way business apps are built. So I think Customer Studio is the, that we've released as an example of like normal SaaS app. You know, you buy it, you have to put all your data into it, but you never put all your data into it. You put a subset of the data that makes sense, and then you hit limitations because you don't have this field or that field in it. Now, if if my app like Hightech Customer Studio can sit directly on top of the data warehouse, that's like very interesting, right? Because data onboarding is like super quick. And it's not easy from an engineering perspective to do what we've done today and like making a snappy UI, et cetera, but it, I think it's going to become easier. And I think that'll, that'll change the way SaaS apps are built and um, the way business teams think about trying new tools. Like with, with Hightouch in place, if they want to try a new tool, they can just sign up for it and use Hightouch to port the data from the warehouse to that tool on a real-time basis really easily. But if you don't have those sorts of capabilities in a data warehouse, every, you know, you, you might not try a new tool. You might just use Salesforce for everything and, not have the best streamlined operations for where you could be, right? So Yeah, absolutely. All right. So you talk about business teams doing this, customer studio, things like this. I, I got to ask too, because, you know, LLMs and ChatGPT, all this stuff is like the, you know, news every day coming out about this. Like, do you see... Do you see that working in the in the analytics space? I like I think back to when I was doing data engineering, and some people in the team would not on my like just like within the company would try and go write their own queries, but wouldn't know sort of the shape of the the data, all kinds of stuff, and it'd be sort of madness outside the the analyst team. I guess like how do you see this sort of fitting in? Is that going to be a, a a good addition there? Yeah, you know, initially when all this let's say way back, you know, ten years ago, NLP, we we're hearing about NLP and all this stuff, and there are a few companies that came up saying, you don't need to write SQL queries. You can use NLP for it. Just write in human language. I didn't really believe this stuff. I'll be honest. I was a skeptic. I didn't think it was happening. But now I'm, 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 I'm seeing it. I think there's potential. Like I think, you know, what OpenAI has been putting out from GPT-3 to ChatGPT to now I hear it's GPT-4 is very cool. And I do think the technology might actually be transformative. Um, I mean... You mentioned a clear problem, right? Data dictionaries, knowing what what tables to query and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of companies out there that are helping you build that data dictionary um, in a manual way and also like reading your query logs to see what tables were queried most recently and stuff like that. I think, yeah, I think just LLMs could make that process like, you know, way better by trying to figure out what different tables mean, what are people querying it for, what kind of dashboards are people building off those tables. Um, so yeah, I do think, I frankly do think there's going to be a lot of application in the analytics space. I don't know if it'll eliminate SQL, like people are maybe saying online, but I do think it will transform a lot of roles, data included, um, and business data roles included. So I I agree. I was kind of like you. We we heard the hype for so long, and it was it was it was so easy to dismiss. And you're like, nah, it's it's not going to happen. And then just some of the stuff you're seeing this year, and even just in the last like two weeks, it's just been. Yeah 
amazing the the velocity it's it's a new world we're going into so I'll be, for sure i'll be curious like how it all how it all turns out um, no certainly yeah. Yeah, but but hey, Tejas, thank you for for coming on here. This has been a, a great episode. I'm I'm glad to finally know about this space because I've heard about about this stuff a ton, and I've been you know been out of the data engineering game a bit. So uh, I really appreciate you coming on and and talking to us. For for people that want to find out more about you or about High Touch, where can they where can they find out more? Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm always available on old school email. So Tejas T E J A S at HighTouch.com, just like word high and touch um, dot com and then on twitter and linkedin my username is just my name so tejas monoher i'm uh, pretty straightforward and simple there too and i'm pretty active on both those sites so yeah and then obviously hightouch.com as well as our our website with all our information awesome sounds great tejas monoher founder at high touch thanks for coming on software engineering daily yeah thank you for having me alex